The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You might assume that in order to find these guys, you'd have to navigate onto the dark net or find some shady middleman somewhere. But... In many cases, we saw that the clients would be found on LinkedIn. Uh, the Indian hackers would, would uh, trawl LinkedIn for private investigators, send them direct messages to the effect of, hey, do you need some cyber investigation help? Rarely was it described openly as hacking, but you know, private investigators that we spoke to said that they all immediately understood the kinds of services that were on offer. And the Indians would proceed in that way messaging hundreds and hundreds of private investigators all across the world, just directly on LinkedIn, cold calling. I'm Alvaro Marañón, fellow in cybersecurity law at Lawfare, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, July 12th, 2022. The hackers for hire industry continues to grow unbothered. Reports in recent years have uncovered details about governments and officials using spyware and other security and privacy circumventing tools to target both dissidents and other sensitive targets. But another equally invasive and secretive industry has developed over the last decade, involving the use of foreign hackers to win lawsuits and arbitration battles. I sat down with Chris Bing and Raphael Satter. Chris is a reporter for Reuters covering digital espionage and Raphael is a journalist and writer for Reuters covering cybersecurity. Chris and Raphael recently published an extensive investigation titled How Mercenary Hackers Sway Litigation Battles, where they break down this hackers-for-hire business model in India. We discuss the details around the structure of this marketplace, the tactics, techniques, and procedures used by the various hacking groups, and what the significance of this illicit industry could be for other sensitive communities. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 12th, How Mercenary Hackers Sway Litigation Battles. The rise of the hackers for hire industry has been reported in past years and predominantly occurred within the context of government interest, as in governments have been the ones employing these firms and operators to hack dissidents and other sensitive targets. But your investigation here is about an entirely different market with different players and motives. Can you speak about what sparked this initial investigation? So our investigation really began in 2018 when we heard about a uh, report that was being produced by Citizen Lab uh, about an Indian hacker for hire firm that was targeting a group of environmental activists who had been campaigning against ExxonMobil uh, amid a litigation battle. And um, 
we were interested in this topic because we had rarely heard about environmentalists being targeted and we wanted to learn more. Um, you know, years earlier, we had been tracking and trying to learn more about different mercenary hacking organizations. We had heard there was a number of them in India, but we never had something very concrete to go after. So this Citizen Lab report, um, which came out, I believe in 2020, known as Dark Basin, was kind of a jumping off point for us. And following then, uh, what indications have you gotten or developments have you seen that there was things missing from this initial investigation, as in there's a larger uh, ecosystem here at play? I think what we realized was that this is an industry that has a long history uh, dating back to at least 2010. And there was one company which we discuss in our story known as Appen, where many of these um, hackers had worked for and had been trained. And what we learned through our investigation is that Appen had a business where it would sell hacking services to private detectives and other clients who would then use those hacking services uh, in order to win litigation battles. They would, the private eyes would be hired by wealthy clients. Um, and then they would hack litigants on the other side of a dispute in order to gain an advantage, in order to steal privileged information. And this was a business model that had existed for, for a decade. And um, as professionals that worked at Appen left the company, they started their own businesses. And so it sort of spawned an entire industry. Um, the One of the companies we talk about in our story, Beltrox, the same company that was first revealed by Citizen Lab, was one of those companies, one of those alumni companies that started from that network. Yeah, Beltrox has been uh, quite active. I know you cite uh, two investigations into their dealings. Can you speak a bit about uh, the particular players and the, I guess the infamous Gupta? Yeah, so uh, Sumit Gupta uh, is a young Indian computer security expert. Uh, he first came up on the radar in 2015 through a uh, an indictment in the Northern District of California where two private detectives were hired uh, in what was essentially a multi-level marketing dispute between two companies, two multi-level marketing companies. And Gupta was hired by a PI in that case to hack one side. And so he was uh, publicly charged, uh, indicted, uh, and, but never, never apprehended or captured or brought back to the United States. And so this is when his name kind of first appears in public. Fast forward years later, and he's still running a hacking company, uh, which is Beltrox. And he's serving the same type of clients involved in similar style disputes uh, without much break or pause or, um, or issue. And so Gupta was kind of one of these Appen alumni that we discuss in our story who, you know, really saw a business by selling services to Western private eyes and by hacking litigants. And from here, uh, can you speak about how you came across this really rich trove of uh, this database you described this hackers hit list? It has tremendous detail. I guess, Raphael, could you start? Yeah, I can, I can cover some of that. The uh, the hacker hit list was enormous. It's, um, it's about, 80,000 uh, lines of information. And, um, and we stumbled upon it after, after trying to figure out how it was that these hackers were, were doing their jobs. 
right? You know, every hacker, every group of hackers has their own specific techniques. And one of the things that you try to figure out as an investigator is, you know, how do the guys pull off what they pull off? And are there any kind of vulnerabilities that enabled us to see what they're doing? Um, and while we can't say specifically, you know, who it was who supplied us with their data, we can speak in general terms. And one of the things that we noticed is that these hackers were very, very cost conscious. They were very interested in using free services to carry out their activities. And the old saw about free services is true is that if, you know, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. And, and that was true of some of these email services that the hackers were using. So the hackers, for example, were very interested in tracking their emails to see whether or not their victims were opening their phishing messages. And there are services around the internet that allow you to do that. They're called email tracking services. Um, they were also interested in anonymizing uh, the messages that they sent. And again, you know, all over the internet, there are services that allow you to do that. And so we zeroed in on some of these services and we, we, we knocked on several doors to try to get help. And in some cases we were successful and in other cases we were unsuccessful. But in the cases in which we were successful, uh, the people who ran these services were able to uncover a huge trove of data about when exactly these hackers were active, who they were active against, and most interestingly, from our point of view, how they were caring about their, their attacks. So we could see, for example, in some cases, the actual subject lines that the hackers were using to try to entice their targets to click. And that gave us a lot of insight into the nature of the dispute that these hackers were getting involved in. Because although some of the phishing was pretty generic, the kind of phishing that you or I would receive every day, you know, click here to, you know, to, to see a message on Facebook, that kind of stuff. Um, other stuff was very targeted and, and actually referred to the relevant lawsuits in the subject line itself. So that gave us a huge amount of insight. And, and then we faced the task of, um, well, you know, what do we do with this data? And, and here I might hand it over to Chris. Yeah, um, just two quick questions regarding this hackers list. Um, one, how did you go about the, uh, the verification of the authenticity with this list? Uh, I know there's a lot, of, a lot of barriers here that you guys went through. And in the second part, you speak a, bit, a little bit about the, the more tailored aspect. Was this generally a trend within the larger ecosystem in India, or was it just particular firms that were, I guess, investing more into this human uh, engineering? So the list, when, when, we, when we received this data, which was, as Raphael put it, kind of a hacker hit list, it showed us all of the outbound phishing that these Indian hackers were doing towards targets. We had to organize it and sort of make it make sense to us, which was uh, a little bit of like a data science challenge. We had help from a colleague in London who was hugely helpful to us um, to organize it all. But we still had the issue of basically a giant stack of hay that didn't really make a lot of sense. And um, what the data offered us was a story, but one that was obfuscated. We needed to be cleaned up, needed to be better understood. And a challenge there also was ensuring that that data was accurate, that this data indeed showed Indian hacker for hire activity. In order to do that, there's only really a few companies around the world that could look at a data set like this and say, okay, you know, we've seen this stuff before, or we've seen this stuff on our email platforms. 
and we can confirm to you it's real, it's legit. And those companies are the companies that we ultimately approached and were, and were really gracious enough to help us work through this. And those companies included Microsoft and Google, as well as several cyber threat intelligence companies uh, that have a history of tracking Indian hackers, including uh, Mandiant, BAE, and others. And so they were able to actually look at the phishing, uh, the IP addresses associated with the phishes, the sender accounts, uh, the exact date and times when they were being able to send, and then look at that same activity on their own platforms and say, yep, this matches up with what we're seeing. And that's how we were able to authenticate it. Um, the second part of it, though, in order to make sense of it all, was a very uh, time-intensive process of reaching out to every victim in the data set, all 13,000, with the simple question, uh, do you remember this phishing email did you did you get hacked is this time important to you because remember the data provided us with the date and the time that they were getting sent to fish and over and over and over again rafael and i were just really struck that when we contacted the targets they would say you know it's funny you mentioned that date i i was about to uh launch this um this lawsuit against a business partner of mine or uh yeah you know it Actually, I was in the middle of this lawsuit with uh, with my with my wife or with my uh, former business partner or with this company I was trying to acquire. And so it always seemed that when we spoke to victims that were in this data set, that the timing stood out for them. They could understand it. And the other thing that helped was that once we told them when the fishes occurred, when they were being sent to hacking attempts, they could check their own inbox as long as they had some retention rules on their inboxes and they could verify for themselves that we were telling them the truth that they had indeed received these hacking attempts at that time so that always made the conversation much easier is when they were when they were able to self-validate they had received that phishing email um and then in some cases the people who had received the phishing email and then could find it would in some cases forward it to us and then we could actually look at the malicious link they had been sent sent that back to a cybersecurity researcher, a source who could then analyze it again. And so there was a lot of like kind of nitty gritty on the back end, but the the project really flourished through these uh, through, through these thousands, hundreds of interviews that we did where people told us their stories and explained to us why this timing mattered. And that was supported then by interviews that we did with several of these Indian hackers who told us, you know, directly that they would often be hired amid litigation battles and that they could charge thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in order to get into these inboxes for their clients. And speaking about their clientele, how did they go about finding clients? Did they have to rely on intermediaries? Did they, you know, as we see with other cybercrime, rely on online illicit forums or was it something different? I think one of the things that struck us as we were digging into this, Alvaro, is that um, just how low-tech the pitching process was. Um, you know, you might assume that in order to find these guys, you'd have to navigate onto the dark net um, or, or, or find some shady middleman somewhere. Um, and, you know, it's possible that that happened in some cases. Um, and definitely there are a lot of middlemen involved in this, in this industry. But in many cases, we saw that uh, the, the clients would be found on LinkedIn. Uh, the Indian hackers would would uh, trawl LinkedIn for private investigators, send them direct messages to the effect of, 
hey, do you need some cyber investigation help? Uh, rarely was it described openly as hacking, but you know, private investigators that we spoke to said that they all immediately understood the kinds of services that were on offer. And, um, and the Indians would proceed in that way, m- messaging hundreds and hundreds of private investigators all across the world, just directly on LinkedIn, cold calling them. And that's how some of the, that's at least how some of the clientele got connected with Indian hackers. Uh, that is, for example, we, we open with, um, with a case in California involving a, a private investigator who used to work for um, a Blackwater and, and who had set up in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, he doesn't remember exactly how it is that he found the hackers, but it was either on LinkedIn or through some sort of online advertisement, um, very, very much in the open. Uh, later on, as the industry matured, we've seen evidence that there is a network of established middlemen that funnel wealthy clients towards these hackers. Because for the ultra-wealthy clients, those aren't the kinds of people who spend a lot of time on LinkedIn fielding cold calls. You know, they have there are layers of people that they go through. Um, but eventually, all of it comes down to a private investigator communicating over Skype or LinkedIn with... Um, with uh, with some of these Indian hackers, and and that was it's kind of humorous to see how that were, how that happened. Yeah, that is quite surprising how open they are compared to other types of cyber crimes where they set up various barriers. But I guess that kind of goes back to the I guess you say the common characteristics with the infrastructure and techniques used by these uh, hackers for hire. They often replicate or use existing infrastructure. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, all of it is very low tech. Um, and uh, and low effort. I mean, you know, that's in part why we were able to get such amazing data on their activities, is that they were uh, they were pretty sloppy and uh, and they were pretty complacent uh, about using free and open services. Um, that you know that that kind of goes against the grain of what you might think these hackers or how you might think these hackers behave. Uh, which is, you know, in a kind of very ultra sophisticated, stealthy way, um, they they were they were involved in a pretty low effort uh, activity. And speaking, if you could speak about a particular instance of one of these investigations and how one of these emails proved to be a smoking gun, I know you spoke about a WeWork incident um, and also a lawsuit with the Nigerian government. Either would be great. Yeah, I could speak to the Nigerian example a little bit, um, in part because it was. It was almost forehead slapping how the the the, the incident took place. Uh, there was um, it was in the context of an arbitration battle between the Nigerian government and the family of an Italian investor. Um, they were arguing over the uh, the rights to a block of oil fields and and a company called Pan Ocean, uh, which the Italian family had lost control of. And in the middle of the case, um, someone emails the tribunal with confidential documents from the Nigerian government side. And there's no real explanation in the email for where these documents come from. It just says uh, the real truth about Pan Ocean. And, and the email appears to come from a lawyer for the Nigerian government, which is particularly puzzling because, you know, why would a lawyer for the Nigerian government be sending the tribunal confidential documents from his own side. It was almost as if the lawyer had gone rogue and decided to throw his own clients under the bus. And uh, we spoke to the lawyer involved, a guy named Oluwesina uh, Ogumbare, and what 
Oluwisina told us is that he had nothing to do with the email. Um, somebody had stolen these documents from, uh, from his side, had impersonated him in an email, and then sent that email to the arbitrators at the tribunal. Um, and, and that, you know, it just, you know, he was completely puzzled by how this worked because for him, it, it didn't pass the smell test. Um, you know, you know, even if you thought that he had sent it accidentally, it, it just it just didn't really make sense. So um, to his surprise, the the tribunal actually accepted the documents, um, albeit with some caveats. And uh, and there was some concern that that they would that they would rely on the documents for their judgment. In the end, that didn't happen. But it was still an example of how brazen these kinds of hacks can be, because you know, you might expect there to be some sort of explanation for how these documents were, were obtained. Um, and there wasn't in this case. In the end, we found the explanation because we found that Ogunbare and indeed many of his colleagues in Nigeria had been on this hacker hit list. And, and in fact, they'd been targeted by these Beltrox hackers only a couple of months before this mysterious email landed inside the tribunal's inbox. So that gave us sort of an explanation of, of what took place there. Um, like a lot of crimes, uh, hacking is relatively easy to do, but being able to launder the information is, is a little bit more difficult. And that's where we see these hackers fail time and time again. They're able to get this information, which can be use, very useful to their client, but they never they they often don't have a particularly plausible explanation for how they got the data and therefore find it relatively difficult or relatively more difficult to launder it into the court system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And speaking of this attempted laundering, uh, your investigation highlights around 35 cases from the past decade or so. Can you speak a bit about the breadth of the companies involved? And in particular, it was a bit interesting. There was no real particular industry that was focused. Generally, you would think it's kind of high stakes, but it went from beverage companies to environmental to NGOs, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, we can't get into the the details of each case, but uh, but the breadth. You're right about the breadth. Um, so we we did speak to people who were in divorce cases, right? You know, that's that's about as personal as it can get. In the Nigerian case, you're talking about um, an arbitration battle uh, whose value, which was valued at 1.5 billion dollars. You know, that was the amount of uh, of the damages that they were seeking. So it really ran the gamut. And no, there weren't. There were. There wasn't a particular pattern to the industry. Um, we've seen it. We've seen it all over, from from energy to real estate to retail. Uh, you name it. And in the past, the FBI and other uh, agencies have been close 
I've been closing in on this Indian market for cyber hackers for hire, but they've never really pieced it all together. Um, and you particularly speak in your investigation, both of you speak about how you were able to trace the money and the extent of this. Can you speak a little bit about the details of what you uncovered? Yeah, I think that you're probably thinking about the Farhad Azima case, um, which which we mentioned. That that was a uh, that was an unusual case and remains an unusual case, in that one of the 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 victim party has been able to allegedly trace back the money all the way from the client um, through the private investigators to the hackers, and um, and they did it through through several ways. One is that we got in touch with them to tell them that, you know, that they'd been targeted by Indian hackers, so they had that to go on. And then they hired their own private investigators who were able to fill in some of the blanks in our own understanding of what happened. And according to them, um, what took place was that um, Farhad Azima, who's a, a, a U.S. Uh, aviation executive, um, got into a business dispute with um, an investment agency based in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And um, and then his emails were hacked. They were leaked online. And those emails appeared to show him uh, plotting against um, his business partner. His business partner then sued. And his business partner then won. Um, shortly thereafter, we get in touch. Um, and we tell him, hey, did you know that you were targeted by Indian hackers? He then hires these PIs. And these PIs are able to find out that these Indian hackers were paid a million dollars by a U.S. private investigator. That U.S. private investigator at the time was working for a major U.S. law firm called Deckert. And at the time, Deckert was representing his former business partner. And, um, and that completed the chain. Um, now, that, you know, that, that case is still being litigated. Um, and um, you know, I'd be very curious to see how it, how it ends. Uh, but it's it's interesting to note that that former business partner, this this investment agency based in the United Arab Emirates, has recently said that they are no longer defending the case, and um, and they've uh, they've effectively waved the white flag and 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 offered to settle it. So um, I think you will probably be seeing more information about that very soon. No, absolutely, and uh, I guess importantly, the pay there was quite high for the Indian hackers. What typically or how costly is it for a client to target someone or employ these services? I know it, the retainers range, but generally, is it quite costly? So one way to think about this is that at each step in the chain, someone is taking a cut and it's larger as it gets closer to the client. And so um, the client will pay a private detective and uh, in, in, in usually a retainer per month of tens of thousands of dollars or up to or up to several hundreds of thousands of dollars per month. That private detective will then hire the Indian hackers and the Indians are often paid either per target or per job. And they will be given uh, a certain amount of money based on which target has more priority. So there was a question about the range and sophistication for the phishing emails they sent. Because in some cases, they almost looked like spam. And in other cases, they were so well tailored, it was like they'd been spying on that person physically for months. They knew what cases they were working on, what legal cases, who their business partners were, the names of their family members, um, what sports clubs they were into, uh, where they volunteered. And they'd craft their phishing emails with this information. And it showed a higher priority. 
And so in some cases for non-priority hacking targets, what we were told is it could range from a few thousand dollars, but higher priority hacking targets um, for clients, Indian hackers could be paid somewhere in the range between 20 and 30,000 in order to uh, turn over the email inbox content. And to what extent were the, I guess the, the clientele repeat customers or were they often just one-off uh, requests? We believe that ultimately this is a fairly small community of middlemen who work with the Indian hackers who then turn those capabilities and those services out to a larger network of clients. So the people who are really connecting the Indian hackers to Western faces, to Western businesses is, you know, a group of maybe under a hundred private detectives and other types of middlemen. Um, but in the end, the larger network of clients is, is probably much larger. Uh, as we were told by one former Beltrox executive, repeat business and repeat customers is how this whole industry works. And it's crazy how long it's been going on, I guess, somewhat secretively. Uh, but I guess within certain circles, it's been kind of a known secret. And I guess following your investigation, um, there have been a lot of victim companies that have spoken up or speaking out, launching their own types of actions. Can you speak a little bit about of what type of remedial actions they sought? Was it simply civil damages or did they just want some type of attribution? I think it's probably a mixture of both in terms of the uh, in terms of the victims. Uh, there's uh, there's a great desire on behalf of people who've um, lost litigation uh, to try to see if there's some grounds for appeal, and in that respect, it's very important for them to figure out who targeted them and under what circumstances. Um, afterwards, uh, you know, if it gets that far, there's the question of damages, and I think that. You know, in the Farhad Azima case that we uh, that we just discussed, uh, they've got to that stage now where there's where there's negotiations over uh, the size of a potential settlement. And you also touched upon uh, or cite the uh, destruction of hacked data in this one Israeli court order, which was quite interesting. Um, and you also highlight, I think, recently tweeted about uh, one NGO in India uh, had some difficulties with their own investigation with law enforcement. And after that, we can speak a little bit about the themes of how what role law enforcement plays here. Yeah, I think that there is, um, you're probably referring to what's called an FIR in India. A, um, there was an Indian NGO uh, whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, uh, but they, uh, they're a civil society group that focuses on internet freedom issues. And uh, they filed a criminal complaint against Beltrox. And... Shortly before our story was published, uh, they they realized that that criminal complaint had been closed without explanation, and I, I don't I don't know you know there was given that there was no explanation I, I I can't speculate as to why it was closed or 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 whether any investigation happened, but it's interesting in the context of what Chris brought up earlier that the owner or co-owner of Beltrox Sumit Gupta has been a wanted man for uh, for years, and he's been on law enforcement's radar for the better part of a decade. And yet he was able to operate openly in Delhi. And even now, uh, two years after the scale of Beltrox's operations have been exposed, we have no real understanding of what, if anything, Delhi police is doing to investigate Beltrox. And, and there are any number of reasons for that, but, um, but it's really interesting that, that Sumit, as far as we're aware, um, has not been arrested or charged. Yeah, that's interesting. We've seen that in, again, the ransomware context where 
in Russia, we often see the state acquiesce or I guess give their subtle approval of the various ransomware groups, uh, I guess, launching their investigations or their campaigns. Uh, but do you see a shift in the U.S. and India's relationship here um, going forward? Will this threat grow? And how would you think the U.S. might respond? I think that's a really good question. And it's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, through our investigation, we believe that the FBI and, and U.S. law enforcement has been aware of the Indian hacker for hire market and its impact on Americans, Europeans, litigation battles for just about as long as it's existed for a decade. And in particular with, with Mr. Gupta, at least since 2015 with those charges, um, you know, we would love to know what the conversation has been like between U.S. law enforcement and Indian law enforcement about this and why there doesn't appear to really have been a hard crackdown on this activity over the years. But, you know, to what degree it's going to change Indian and U.S. relations, I think minorly, if at all, um, because of how long it's been going on. And, you know, these cases, hacking cases are notoriously hard to bring um, by prosecutors. You have to prove that a specific person behind a computer at a specific time is responsible for this computer crime. So they can take years to develop and years to, to publicly come out. And so, you know, one case that we're closely monitoring that we'd like to turn listeners on onto is this case involving a man named Aviram Azari, who is in prison in New York. We discuss um, his case. He is an Israeli private detective who was arrested in New York several years ago while vacationing in the United States. And he had hired um, Indian hackers, specifically Beltrox, to hack targets that were all commonly critical and had received, many of them had received legal threats from a German payments company known as Wirecard. Um, the Wirecard story is this kind of insane, wild story about a quickly rising German tech company that has now uh, fallen out of business and filed for insolvency and whose CEO uh, is in prison under fraud charges. And what we commonly saw was that Beltrox in our data was really hacking in great force, critics, journalists, financial analysts, uh, big New York hedge funds that had bet against Wirecard. And um, this Aviram Mazari private detective, his case is one that's coming to a conclusion finally. He pled guilty several months ago um, in the charging documents uh, by the Southern District of New York. They describe how this Indian hacking campaign has thousands of victims and that they worked for clients in the United States and many other countries. Uh, and so they're, they're clearly referring to a larger universe of both victims and clients that they know about. So you know, there could be more hammers that fall here throughout the rest of this year and next year, and what potential impact it has on U.S.-India relations is going to be hard to predict until we see that. Looking at other fields to, I guess, learn, to draw learning lessons from, uh, the human rights in particular has been quite familiar with these types of dangers of spyware, especially 
with Pegasus. Uh, so what does your investigation mean for those less familiar with this threat? Uh, you spoke about how those in the high stake diet shake industry have been targeted and those with financial, I guess, developments or uh, issues. But who else should be concerned or be, I guess, cautious of this? You know, I think if you're in high stakes litigation where you can assume that private detectives are being hired on both sides of the legal dispute, there's a possibility that downstream somewhere in the contracting universe between these private detectives, a hacker gets involved and that they target your inbox, your cell phone. You know, the, the activity we talk about in our story is ultimately phishing. Uh, it's email phishing, something that's common, but still very effective. I think where this industry is going is in a more tailored, sophisticated cyber capabilities manner in which you could start to see things like phone hacking, zero days on phones, um, because these litigation battles are worth can be worth so much money. And a small piece of information, a piece of evidence that gets leaked online or that's able to be used to, to uh, design the discovery strategy for one legal side is so valuable that you could potentially see hackers get involved. I think beyond legal disputes, uh, where a lot of money is at stake, legal disputes that involve um, developing countries or countries where like cyber laws are not necessarily as established or places where hackers may be brought in. Um, we saw a nexus in particular with like Eastern European oligarchs in cases involving Eastern European oligarchs, where if you are facing a legal battle with them, Beltrox, Appen, or another Indian company would kind of get involved. And it was hard to say, obviously, in some of those cases, like exactly who they were working for, what their intentions were, but it was the classic kind of case where these guys got involved. We did see some human rights targeting. It was a smaller group than like the larger target list, but we did see some of that. And we think, as we discussed in our story, that it's possible that these Indian hackers had a few government clients. So they actually kind of facilitated domestic intelligence collection efforts. Uh, and that's something that we're going to try and explore more in future reporting. And I guess to end off, could you speak about the the importance, if there is, and the motives and, and we see here in other types of uh, cyber crimes investigations? Uh, here, often they're financial motives by private players. But as you, as you mentioned, uh, they're, they're beginning to target states and the public sector. Uh, will that raise or accelerate some of these negotiations around changes in India? You know, that, that, that assumes that, that there are negotiations around uh, change, uh, which I'm not 100% sure of. Uh, the, the use, um, you know, the, the entry of these private actors into state conflicts is, is something that, um, that we've been watching. Um, I, you know, we've, but we've seen that all over the place. Um, we've seen that, for example, in debates around Pegasus and NSO. Um, we've, we've seen that elsewhere. I, I don't know that we've reached a critical mass um, of concern where, you know, people are going to kind of stand up and take notice. That may change at some point, but you know, I, I, I don't see a huge amount of concern at the international level about the operations of these kinds of hack for hire firms. 
um, there there has been some as far as as the um, as the Israeli companies NSO and 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 Candira are concerned, um, but we have not yet seen that filter through to India. That may yet happen. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Raphael. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Shellen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.